0: at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett. I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your blog, talk radio, or Facebook account. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the theafrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like my page and join my Facebook group. Well, we all talk about that brick wall when we cannot seem to find what we're looking for. However, have you considered that you may have an artificial brick wall? Perhaps the answer is there, and you have not exhausted all the resources to find that elusive ancestor. Well, I want to remind the listeners that I do have a podcast that has been played more than once that really have addressed some of the issues that perhaps you hadn't considered. For example, Char McCargo-Barr came on the show and she talked about who's in the house. Have you looked in the house? Also, we've had Dr. Deborah Abbott discuss cluster research. If you have not listened to those two podcasts, please go back and listen to those shows. Well, tonight's show will examine the reasons you may be experiencing a brick wall and discuss strategies to help you overcome those issues. Genealogist Robin Smith has been researching her family and others for 17 years. An engineer by day, Robin makes good use of those research and problem-solving skills in the field of genealogy. She specializes in Maryland research, African-American, and slave research and court records. Robin has a strong interest in promoting the documentation of families and communities and emphasizing the use of proper genealogical standards in our research, such as using original records and source citations. Robin teaches an advanced African-American genealogy class part-time at Howard Community College in Columbia, Maryland, lectures locally and has published several genealogy articles in local journals. Her two newest lectures on using land records and cluster research. She is also the author of a genealogy blog called Reclaiming Kin, which can be viewed at uh, MSUalumni.WordPress.com. So let me give a warm welcome to Robin Smith to research at the National Archives and beyond. Robin? Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond.
1: Hi, Bernice. Thank you for having
0: me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You know, this is an issue that we all talk about. And, Robin, you wrote in your blog that your friend Aaron calls this brick wall artificial. Tell us what's going on here. Why is it? Artificial.
1: that's a good question i'll first say that i find that many of my blog posts come from conversations that i have with my genealogy genealogy buddies so we all have that group of friends that we've meet that we uh connect with over time and so a lot of times we'll be talking about things and i say i'm going to blog about that so that's how this came about um It's not meant to be provocative, although it sounds that way. It's really meant to encourage us all to keep on learning genealogical records and techniques and, more than anything, to be thorough, okay? Um, We all know that there are going to be some things about our history that we may never discover or never know. So nobody's going to have 100% knowledge and clarity about every line and every person because some of the records simply don't exist, So that's an important uh, point to make, nobody's going to have all of the answers. Mm -hmm. But I contend that true brick walls take time, often years, to build up. And I like to use this analogy, I like to use analogies. Uh, If you imagine that every type of record in every different place for each person is a brick, is an individual brick, Mm
0: -hmm. and if
1: you've only searched census records, a few death certificates, marriage records in one county, you've got maybe three or four bricks, and that's not a wall. So if you can think of that, picture it that way, a wall implies extensive effort at the search. So, for example, you've searched different counties, different states, several different generations. You've researched in-laws and cousins. You've been to the courthouse and the archives, the historical society the cemetery, the church, you search centrists and court records, land, military tax, and so on and so forth, and you still cannot solve that problem. Now, that is a real brick wall. And what I find frequently is happening is that people just haven't gone far enough. Some Some of us have exhausted our ability to actually solve the problem. So if you think about it that way. Um, not everyone's going to have an interest in researching to the nth degree that it might take to solve that problem. So what do you do when that happens? You can pay a professional to do more research, which uh, I've done many times myself, or you can decide that you're going to try to solve it yourself, dig in your heels, and really start learning all the different ways that you can get more training in genealogical skills and methods. So that's sort of the background and the approach that I took um, and the driver for this particular post. And what I like to do is kind of walk through. I give 12 examples in the post. And what I want to do is kind of walk through each one, read it, and give a little bit more insight, and then hopefully uh, listeners may have questions about these particular items.
0: Okay, great. Well, bring it on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Uh, I start the post by saying uh, these can also be called self-imposed brick walls. People use lots of different uh, terms to, de- to describe it. We say this to mean we've labeled something a brick wall that really isn't. Number one I have, we declare the brick wall of not being able to find an ancestor in a census, but we haven't tried multiple spellings. We haven't tried multiple pronunciations. We haven't used wild card searches. We haven't searched the surrounding counties. We haven't looked in other states. We haven't used other census websites other than Ancestry. We haven't considered that they could have migrated out of state. And biggest of all, we haven't done a line-by-line search in the county that we expect to find them in. So this is big. And I want to say also that I've made almost all of these mistakes myself. So these all come from personal experience. Yes. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I still make many of them. Uh, but the first one is meant to capture censuses because that's what most of us start with. Most of us start in census records, and it's very easy to not be able to find someone and say, hey, they're just not there. So uh, what I suggest is that people learn multiple census search strategies, okay? Things like searching maybe for the name of one of the children in the household who's over 10 years old, uh, particularly ones that have an odd name. Searching for neighbors. Sometimes if I uh, can't find someone, i look for their neighbors uh, in the search box. If they have an odd occupation, you can look for, search for the occupation. Searching by birthplace. Okay, so all of these different ways that you can search census records and really exhaust them and, and the final step should be going line by line, page by page and reading every name before you conclude that they're not there. Especially what happens with a lot of us is we'll find them maybe in nineteen ten and nineteen thirty, but we don't have nineteen twenty. And your mm-hmm. mind kind of would, you know, assume they should be there if they were there in 1910 and 1930. So that's where you know you got to really dig in and try to find them. And really to learn how to pull every clue from the census. I find that a lot of people still just use it to get the family structure and maybe the ages of people and maybe marriage dates, but there are so many other clues buried in those census records, and we have to learn. How to 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 utilize those.
0: That's right. So that's point that's right. one. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can have
1: you have an example of that from from all of your research, Bernice. I'm sure of a census record
0: <laughs>
1: that you found oh. finally.
0: <laughs> Look, let me tell you. One of my crazy crazy cases was finding my ancestor with a different name in the 1870 census,
2: mm-hmm. but different finding surname? him.
0: His surname, surname, hmm. different surname in 1870, but in the Freedmen Bureau records, he had the name that I knew was his name. Wow. So I hmm. had to search for the first names, yes. yes, not the last name, and there he was.
1: And that's a great example, and we know that happens a lot with uh, African-American former slaves. We often have that additional problem to deal with. So the second uh, step in the post, I talk about we declare a brick wall, but we, we've only been to one or two repositories in person. Or worse still, we've done all our research online. <laughs> now, you know, I think those of us who started before Ancestry became a company, it's it's almost, you know, we didn't have any choice but to go somewhere in person. But I think the, um, you know, even though, Ancestry and other repositories have been a great boon to researchers. I think it really can uh, encourage new new genealog- genealogists to believe that they can find most of the information that they need there. You must do research in repositories, state and local archives, local libraries, colleges and universities, genealogical or historical societies, churches and cemeteries. Got to get up, out that seat and go in there and go sick. I, all the best stuff is, is not on the Internet.
0: <laughs>
1: well, you're right. It's not on the Internet. It's not. Mm-mm. So the next uh, item I have is we declare a brick wall, but we've used books and websites to collect information without ordering and examining the original record. So this happens all the time. I see so many people who print out that uh, transcribed census record from Ancestry, Mm -hmm. and they print that out and put that in their notebook instead of the actual image. (laughs) You know, it's clearer to read, you know, easier to see, but I see that all the time. And I think um, having to really understand the importance of ordering the original record so that you can um, discern clues, From the actual that are going to be missed when when people transcribe it Um, people are satisfied when they find the date of a marriage or birth and a death they'll find that on a database online oh this is when he died but they don't order the original death certificate so that's a big mistake Um, you're missing a lot of information if you don't order the original I, the first thing I do when I find something particularly online is, if it's not original, I, I write away to the courthouse and get the original record.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: important. Number four, we declare a brick wall, but we've only searched two or three types of records, like census records, vital records, and sort of those easy databases, what I call easy on Ancestry, like the World War I draft cards. We haven't even tried to search land records, court records, church records, maps, city directories, probate records. There are so many. You know, this is why I can we can spend our entire lives doing genealogy because the records never seem to run out. <laughs> I know, it's, and I love it.
0: You know, I, I love too. the the possibilities that they're yes. out there. Yes you know yes so, you we know, one thing i was I mentioned to you is that I have this friend who said to me, "People do too much of what they what she would call safe genealogy.
3: Mm-hmm. they don't
0: want to get their hands dirty. they don't want exactly. to go exactly <laughs> that's exactly what i'm th- so if
1: she's using that, I love it because that's that's the same concept i'm talking about when i say artificial or self-imposed it's the same mm-hmm. thing just just not going far enough yes and some of this i mean we we we've heard all the stories some people have to go really i mean when you when you read some of these stories some of our friends have the research that they've done i mean that's what inspires us right is we oh, read yeah. about someone else's yeah. success and so it's a wonderful thing but I mean a lot of these problems they're going to be they're going to take a lifetime to solve. <laughs> so, um expanding into all of these record sets even though I mean I still see too many beginners who just stay at census records and death records and marriage records and that's it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just think there's so much uh learning and training out there um that you can get smart on a lot of these records um and dive in and I think that there are a lot going to be a lot of surprises for people when they start learning about the riches of land records or court records or some of these other um, uh, less common record sets. So my next point, number five, says we declare a brick wall, but we've only been searching for our direct ancestor and maybe his wife and children. We have not expanded to the group or the cluster of people that were associated with our ancestors and would increase our chances for success. Bernice, you just mentioned uh, Dr. Abbott's um, lecture that she gave here, and I I watched that. Um, I've seen her many, many times. She did an excellent um, talk about that, and it's a wonderful method. It's actually solved a lot of my cases for me, and I really can't stress this enough. you got to research everyone who is associated with your family, all the siblings, all the cousins, all of those strange people that you see living with them in the census record, the people who are witnesses on their deeds and on their marriages, in their books and genealogical journal articles that give more of these case studies on how to use the cluster research methodology. It has really busted a lot of tough, tough challenges for me. Um, I in my class I, I show an example of my uh, great-grandfather, John Smith. And I found his obituary that listed a set of people that I wasn't familiar with, and it had the surname Garner. And that one little surname basically uncovered his wife's entire ancestry for me that nobody knew in my family. So cluster research, very valuable. Number six. We declare a brick wall after jumping back several generations and not doing extensive research within each generation on all the siblings and all the children of each sibling. And this is important because you just don't know where you're going to find the information about your family. So you've got to look, right? You've got to look at everybody. You're going to miss critical information if you don't do that. Children all remember different things about their parents. So you find one death certificate on an ancestor. Maybe they don't know the name of the mother. The informant doesn't, but maybe their sibling does. Um, siblings who had no kids, you know, people, people dismiss them. Oh, he didn't marry, he didn't have any kids. Research him. Maybe he left a will and named all his na- nieces and nephews. So in every record set, in every generation, you want to research everybody. Uh, yes, even if there are 10 kids. People say that to me all the time. Well, my ancestor had 12 kids. You mean I got a – my friend Ann, Aaron has an ancestor who had 25 children. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so Whenever I start to feel, you know, think, oh, I can't possibly research, I think about poor Aaron and those 25 children. So uh, number seven, we declare brick wall but we're wearing cultural blinders. We aren't considering that people have had children outside of or before marriage or that they may appear in the records as a different race. So, again, we can't be prepared for what we're going to find when we go down this path, right? I always tell beginners you've got to get some thick skin, <laughs> you know. Don't be yes. easily upset because everything that's being done today was done 100 years ago. So we're mm-hmm. going to find, quote, unquote, outside children. We're going to find other families. We're going to find criminal records. And, of course, within the African-American uh, community, we're going to find relatives who passed. Um, there were lots of interracial children in relationships. And, you know, so there could be some news that might be disturbing for some. And, and we got to take our judgment hats off. You have to approach this as these are our ancestors, good, bad, mean, or ugly. That's right. (laughs) So point number eight, we declare a brick wall, but we've never actually analyzed and correlated the evidence that we already have. In Mm -hmm. fact, we don't know how to evaluate the evidence. We believe everything we see in print is factual, accurate, and true. And if two records give conflicting information, we really have no idea which one is correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I like to say we've got to get out of search mode and learn to analyze what we've got. And this is hard for me and probably hard for a lot of us because we get that rush of excitement and anticipation in the search. I mean, that's what kind of gives you that, that drive, you know, I'm going to go out and look. And so I have to even tell myself, stop, <laughs> stop searching, and let's just look at the, the evidence you have and less analyze it. So it's important that you learn how to do that. That you learn the, the weaknesses and the strengths in each record. Um, the further along you get in your research, there's going to come a time I call it the the low hanging fruit has been picked. You know, all the information <laughs> you get in the first year or two that's the easy stuff, right? So the further, that's the right. longer you're in this, the information is just going to get harder and harder to get. You know, there's going to come a time when you absolutely stop finding direct evidence. So so you're not going to find any more records that say A and B are the parents of C. <laughs> you know, you'll get to a point where you have to piece together the relationship, document by document. And this is the point where you get more people sort of stuck or kind of at a brick wall, because they they've never learned to actually analyze what they have, so I another uh, tip that I'll give for this is I highly recommend writing um, even it, it doesn't have to be writing for anyone to see, but if you just for yourself write out, lay out all the documents that you've gathered on a particular person or a family, and write it all up and what mm-hmm. happens is when you sit down and you write it all up. It's easier to see the holes. It's easier to see the time frames that you don't have any information for. It's easier to see what, confl- com- you know, conflicts with one another. Um, there are a lot going to be a lot of con- conflicting birth dates, right, because, you know, birth dates are really just a very modern thing. It wasn't really until Social Security came about that, that it was important for people to know and be able to prove their birth date. So that's an important thing, learning how to, to evaluate the evidence and Um, Get out of search mode long enough so that you can put together what you've already gathered. So point number nine, we declare a brick wall, and we've never tried to find living descendants of any of the family members. Some of the biggest and most rewarding moments of my research over the years really has been finding new cousins and new cousins who have new stories, new pictures, or really just those who are just glad to meet me and and reclaim family. And I think about this a lot because I think, you know, with the tragic history of slavery, I think all the time about the fact that, you know, our people were sold like cattle and ripped from their families. So finding living relatives is really sort of, for me, a very sweet joy because I think, you know, this is me, combating that whole, you know, what happened during slavery and really reaching out and finding all of my other cousins who are all over this country. Um, There are endless blog posts and webinars and classes and articles on how to find living descendants. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Megan Schmalnack. Schmalnack, she specializes in this. And um, so her website and a lot of... uh, the articles and lectures that she does talks about finding living people. Um, I didn't do enough of this in the early years, and I later found out that relatives were still alive in those years. So if I had put forth a little bit more effort, then I could have found those people. So today what I've learned the hard way is that when I find, when I stumble across a new line, the first thing I do is try to find living descendants, okay? And a short list of ways that you do that are, you know, of course, locating death certificates, trying to find obituaries that name survivors, funeral programs. I always ask people if they have funeral programs. And you can even use Google and White Pages and Facebook and websites like Zaba Zaba Search um, to try to find people who are still living in that area perhaps with that surname. Okay, so point number ten. We declare a brick wall, but we never stop to consider that our ancestor may have had multiple marriages. And we've never actually verified the mother of each child separately from the father. I'm going to really blog about this topic soon because I've had a lot of experiences recently with multiple marriages of women uh, when they seem to disappear um, I have found several ancestors who were, you know, sort of hidden in the records because they kept getting married, the person died and they got married again, um, especially if they got married in multiple different pla- in different places, different cities, different states. But we must remember that census records only state the relationship of the people in the household to the head of the household, okay? So you have no way of knowing if the wife, in that census record, is the mother of those children, okay? We've got to be sure that we prove that relationship some other way. Some other ways could be maybe the husband dies and now the mother is the head of the household and she's widowed. So now the people who are still in the household, it's going to be their relationship to her, okay? And other ways, of course, of proving the mother are vital records, probate records, church records, burial records, etc. So keep that in mind when you're looking in the census record. Uh, keep that in mind about the wives that you see there. Okay, uh, point number 11, we declare a brick wall, but we've never expanded our search to less common but potentially valuable records. These are records stored at universities, historical, and genealogical societies. And remember that depending on the county or the city, the historical and genealogical societies could be two different groups or they might be one group. So you want to make sure, you know, Maryland has a genealogical society <laughs> and then for my, one of my research counties in Montgomery County, they have a historical society. So you want to, you want to keep that in mind. These places hold, really, untold riches in their manuscript collections. Um, I think a lot of times we dismiss, we look for our ancestor, we have their name, and then if we can't find them, we don't look in any of the other records. But we've really got to study, particularly if they were living in a rural area, the records of the other people who were living in the county at the time that your ancestor lived there. So, you know, this speaks to the point that our research has got to be about more than just names and dates, right? That's boring. Nobody wants to read that. But when, you weave, when you're when you able to weave in the social history, you know, you can see history hap- happening as your ancestors are living in that area, that's what really makes it come alive. I've had relatives who were not at all interested in what I was doing until they read an article that I wrote about it, you know, and they go, wow, I mean, you know. The way that you can make it come alive, when you write about it, you've got to talk about what's going on in the area, what happened when the Civil War came to the area, what crops were being grown there, all kind of great social facts. I'll give you a short um, example. I was at the Library of Virginia one year, and my Tennessee ancestors were owned by a man who was born and raised in Amelia County, Virginia, and he later migrated to Tennessee. So even though this man no longer lived in Virginia I was at the library of Virginia looking for anything I could in Amelia County at the time that he lived there and I found the ledger of the local sheriff and this man was important because he he um he did the probate uh in the court records that I he did a lot of the probate for people who lived there and died without a will and I was so amazed because when I opened this ledger he had lists and lists of enslaved people and they were they had dates of birth they had dates of death he had them in family groups i mean that is solid gold i mean that is a very rare document it's a very rare thing indeed and you could tell it wasn't his slaves i mean they were really slaves within the community probably slaves in the uh households that he was probating so that's that's wow. just uh a good example of why we should really just be interested in what's going on in the county, yes. even if you don't find your ancestor there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And my last point, we declare a brick wall, but we've never actually read a book on, geneal- on genealogy methodology or any of the thousands of articles published every year in genealogical journals. Um, we've progressed mainly by asking others what to do next instead of taking the time to learn ourselves what to do next. And I will say this, over the years I've purchased you know, a lot of genealogy books, and I, I always tell people get them at used bookstores. I mean, I, I pay 5 and $8 for these books that were, you know, 40 and $50. I looked up once here in Columbia and I found The Source, which is a huge, you know, genealogy uh, how-to book, I found that in the bookstore for $7. I couldn't believe it. Oh, wow. Yes. So think about that. Think about getting your own personal library of some of these reference books uh, that talk about various types of um, research. So not Mm -hmm. just genealogical how-to books. I also subscribe to genealogy journals. So I subscribe to NGS Quarterly. And I also subscribe to the Maryland Genealogical Society Journal. And these are really helpful because these illustrate how other people solved genealogical problems. And they also describe the various sources, right, in those areas and how they used these various records. So I, I recommend that. I think everyone should at least subscribe to one um, even if you don't subscribe, you can find a local library or archives. you know uh, the Maryland State Archives has all of these journals there so but I really recommend reading them because that's how you're going to grow your skill set you're going to you're going to see how someone solved a problem that was similar to yours. It doesn't have to be about your family or even in the place that you're researching, but what you're going to gather from those ki- kind of journals is how to do the research and how people use that research to solve a problem. Um, and, and since this is such a passion for me, I also tend to read um, historical fiction or fiction or nonfiction related to family history. So books like The Sweet of the Juice, Cane River, Somerset Homecoming, and my personal favorite, The Warmth of Other Suns, which I could just talk about till the cows come home.
2: <laughs> but I
1: won't. And what I'll forward to Bernice also is I have um, – I put together a list of sort of must-have genealogy books that I have up on Amazon, so I'll send her that link so she can send it. And I end the post with this, genealogy is a learned skill and a profession with standards. You get good at it by practice and by education. And I define good as using best practices for careful research and ultimately being able to discern clues that don't jump up off the page. And that's what's going to set you apart from when you were a beginner. And I, I see it in myself. I look at things that I copied or gathered in my early years, and I can see things now that I just couldn't see then. Mm-hmm. So you've got mm-hmm. to sort of progress away from this, this the looking up people in databases and really learn how to look into people's lives that's what i call it which is a different thing altogether so i've been guilty of many of these artificial brick walls myself uh one of the things i do all the time is i tend to declare people are dead when i can't find them (laughs) so anyone who follows my blog they can see i do that all the time and i have to fight that in myself but i've gotten better over the years and um Uh, How I've done that is just constantly educating myself, going to lectures, conferences, reading. um, And I hope everybody will be encouraged to do those things, too. Um, I got a lot of great comments um, to this blog post, so anyone can go to my website, to my blog, and actually type in the title, and you can see all of the comments that people added. And people added to this list. People added other things that they thought, you know, were sort of artificial. So it was a very positive blog. It got a lot of positive uh, commentary, and um, I'm excited about it. I I hope it really helps people to look at it and say, wow, I haven't done that. I haven't done that yet.
0: Yes. Well, Robin, I mean, we have a full house in the chat room, and so we're going to take a break because the second half of the show, I want to hear from the chatters. I want to hear what, what are some of their brick walls, Those who want to call in, please feel free to call in because for the next 30 minutes, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about, did you call it an artificial brick wall? (laughs) We're going to talk about those artificial brick walls. So quick break and we'll be back in a second. well, all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, Jeannie B. Roots. Now, I have opened the phone lines for questioning, and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646 200 Nine one and press one to speak to the host. And you have been listening to Robin Smith and Robin, guess what? The what? switchboard has lit up. Oh my <laughs> uh, god. <the> oh <laughs> yes. All <laughs> the questions, I see them. Okay, oh so I'm going okay. when I open the line I will call out your area code. And the first caller is on from area code three one four. Would you like to ask a question or make a comment?
3: Yes, I would. I have two questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is that she mentioned uh, wild card research, I think she said, Mm -hmm. and I'm not familiar with that, and I would like her to explain that. And my second question is about My Brick wall. My grandmother was born in 1897, and I know that she was from Mississippi. I can't find anything. Uh, I found one record that had the names of people who were possibly her parents, but it was one of those Indian roles that was done three years before my grandmother was born. I don't know where in Mississippi they came from. Uh, they moved to Missouri when she was three years old, and I can't find anything.
1: Thank you for that question. I do appreciate that. When I say wild card searches, I mean the ability on Ancestry to use what is called the wild card. So if you look at most keyboards, if you hit the shift key, the wild card is above usually the number eight. It looks like a star. And what happens when you use that is that uh, Ancestry will uh, use various letters to replace the wild card search. And the beauty in the wild card search is that we know that there are a lot of spelling errors, that people tended to spell things um, depending on how the name sounded. So, for example, uh, one of my surnames, Holt, H-O-L-T, is often transcribed as H-A-L-T because the O looks like an A. So I could do H and then put a wild card, and it's going to pull up all the, the people who have a, a last name that starts with the letter H or maybe H-E, and then you could put that wild card. So Ancestry has a wonderful uh, search capability using that wild card. They also have, you can use the question mark sign, and the question mark will replace one letter. So while the wild card replaces multiple letters, the question mark replaces one. So you can use that a lot for vowels. You know, if it's an E, you don't know if it might be an A or an O, you can put a question mark there and then uh, the other letters in that surname. So that is just one of the strategies that are available when you're coming up empty on uh, an online search site. And I know that Ancestry has other details about how to use the wild card, and I hope that you will um, look to their um, uh, training that they have on the wild card and also the question mark. Your ancestor from um, Mississippi. It's it's hard to address specific brick walls. I know that Mississippi can be a challenging state because I've uh, researched four friends of mine who are from Mississippi. Probably the first thing I would ask is to really be clear about what records are available for your particular county that you're in. So one of the ways of doing that is going to, you can see what the Family History Center has. You can go to familysearch.org, and you can put in the name of the county in uh, their catalog, and you can see what records they have microfilmed from that particular county in Mississippi, uh off the top of my head i would also think that you would need to go to the uh, state archives uh go to their website in mississippi and see if they have uh some sort of file that tells you what records they have for that particular county so uh and also to see in mississippi in that county is there a historical society is there a genealogical society so Stage one is always to find out what records are available. There may be other records available other than the census that may be able to give some insight into the early life of your ancestor. There may be tax records. I know some of the counties in Mississippi have educable uh, children records, records they took of children who were uh, in school. So that would be the guidance that I could give in this short amount of time, and I hope that that is helpful for you. And thank you for asking your questions.
0: Okay, our next caller is area code five oh four.
2: Good evening, five oh four. Good evening. Good evening, Bernice and Robin. um, You're giving some great information. I do want to know. I do believe in the. Archives and local libraries. I just got a packet on yesterday from um, Winchester County, Virginia, that actually took my breath away. Oh. Um, it, it's a, a search, a name that I've been working on for twenty years, oh. and mm. I got, I got it now.
1: We love I got stories it. like that.
2: Okay. And, and, and local
1: libraries, like you mentioned, a lot of them have, just uh, just so I can put this out there, a lot of local libraries have obituary indexes. Maybe not for the 1800s, but a lot of them have in the more modern years, say, you know, maybe after 1950. So one of the first places I go to try to ask if they have obituary indexes are the local libraries. I'm yes. sorry. Go ahead.
2: Exactly, and another source could be the local doctor in the community.
1: Oh, Um, yes.
2: One of the parishes that I work in, um, the doctor recorded everything, and so I know when one of my ancestors came in, and and because many times the plantation owners had to pay for slaves to be treated.
1: That's right, that's right.
2: With that said, I do have a question that just popped up in my mind. I don't know the answer. Okay. On the 1870 census,
0: mm-hmm.
2: what I was once told that many times the information given was secondhand mm-hmm. because the census taker would come and the family would be out in the field mm-hmm. and Mrs. Jones, the next-door neighbor, would give that information. Mm-hmm. Should I consider when I'm doing my research, especially on those difficult names, those bricks, those kind mm-hmm. those of little things there, mm-hmm. That, that the census, census taker, if he was a member of that community, mm-hmm. would put, could put people on the rolls under their names when they were slaves mm-hmm. and, then those, mm-hmm. and then those people changed their names or had changed their names. Is that a possibility to look at?
1: That, that, that someone, could have, someone who's recording their names could have right. recorded it differently. Right. So you, it you ask another very good question. I encourage people all the time. There's a um, university who has put up a website. They have, for every census year, they have the instructions that were given to the enumerators. Now, if you go to my blog and you do a search, I did a post called The Definition of Black." In that post, I talked about how that racial designation changed from year to year. But you bring up a great question. I always recommend when you're in doubt, pull up those census enumerator instructions. You can read, click on each census year, and you can see exactly for each column what they were supposed to do. Now, obviously, some of them did not follow the directions. It is absolutely true that they were allowed to get the, def- the um information about a family, perhaps from a neighbor. So that's true. And how that plays into your research is that um, as a set of records, census records have a uh, high rates of error, okay? So even though they're probably the most common and, you know, in many ways the most valuable set of records we have, we have to really approach them. I always say approach them with a grain of salt you know, and make sure that you know. I mean, people are getting ages wrong. People are getting names wrong. People are getting the surnames mixed up. So, they're, you know, they are known to have high error rates. And so I think that that is um, the approach that you would want to take, that you would look at that 1870 census in concert with all of the other information that you have about that person or family. So you correlate that census record with land records, with marriage records, with tax records, and that's where you're going to get the fullest picture and most accurate picture of your ancestors. So thank you for that, that question.
0: Okay. Uh, the next caller is Area Code 718. And, Carla, could you please turn down the sound on your computer so that we don't get an echo? Oh,
2: okay. All right. I will do that.
0: Um, oh, I know who this is.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I just I wanted to add to that that people have to know why records were created. You know, the lady that just mm-hmm. called and she said, you know, about the errors. But census were never created so that we as future genealogists could gain access and find our families.
1: Oh, great, great point. Oh, my goodness.
2: That's one point. And my other point is how can we, I'm not a professional genealogist, as you know, but I try and help people. Mm -hmm. So when people come to you with their artificial or real brick walls, what's a tactful way of helping them but not doing their genealogy for them?
1: Mm. Another great question. My goodness. Uh, you've got great listeners, Bernice. <laughs> um, I've thought a lot about this. Um, you know, those of us who love genealogy, you know, many of us, we're we're more than happy to start a new search for someone else, you know. But what happens is I have found, particularly at this point, 17 years, I've found that if you solve a problem for someone, they're very happy to get uh, the solution, but have you helped them? Uh, be able to solve the next problem they're going to have and the answer is probably not because, you know, we go from one, one puzzle to the next puzzle, right? So if I help someone without teaching them the technique and the methodology so that they can move forward in their research themselves, is it really doing them a service or a disservice? What I try to do now is I'm very tactful. I try to encourage people to uh I point them towards certain books because I do think that's the most common problem that I see today is that people sort of dive in um and have never read a genealogy genealogy book, just a basic how to book, and so then they don 't know why they can 't find someone in nineteen sixty they don 't know you know why they can 't find someone <laughs> in eighteen ninety but you know those so you' I look at it you 're wasting time you 're wasting your valuable time you want to be able to channel it into um, kind of into a, a path and a plan that's going to work. So I do try to encourage people to read, read some of the basic how-to books, and I will point them uh, sort of in the right direction. But I really do uh, try to shy away from actually solving something for someone because I'm very convinced that where are they are going to be the next time when they're stuck, and the problems don't do anything but get harder.
3: So thank you for
1: that question, and that's the approach that I tend to take.
0: Right. And then we have a few comments uh, uh, coming out of the chat. Uh, Derek mentioned that visiting family burial grounds Mm. uh, is a great source for teaching family history together.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, burial grounds and and all the records that are surrounding death. So we tend to think of death certificates and, like Andrea said, you know those that information about why they died and who their parents were. That that wasn't about for that wasn't for us. That's right. <laughs> you know this was as public health is starting to develop in the country. There's a sense of trying to get statistics and numbers together so they can start understanding and what ages people are dying and demographics and what diseases. So it was really from a public health perspective that that information was added. And um, as Derek alluded to in his uh, uh, message to you, there are all kinds of records not just death certificates you know headstone records um, there are cemetery records if you have a cemetery association the church attached to a great uh, graveyard might have records so there are all kind of records in Washington DC they actually have a set of records for people who died somewhere else and maybe were sent back to DC or either died in DC and then had to be transferred to Maryland so they kept those records so there are all kind of record sets that we can look for for dates of death. Good point.
0: Right. You know, there's another point, too, because so, so, some people are so excited to find, you know, granddaddy owned land or uh, hmm. my great-grandfather was in the Civil War, but hmm. then they don't follow up and look at the land records. Look right. at the information right. that's in the record. A follow yeah. up and look at you know what regiment were they in?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, look
0: for a, a, a pension record. Look for a mm-hmm. widow's pension record. I mean, it's just like reading a novel.
2: Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. you're able
0: to get that, and people don't take it to the next level.
1: Oh yeah, they yeah. Stop and and they're with, there...
0: with the excitement, but they stop. <laughs>
1: they stop. They stop. I hear you. I I find a lot of people don't get a map. You know, I say don't search in the blind. There are all kinds of people who never think to actually try to get a map of the actual area where their ancestors lived. I mean, even if it's uh, the county maps, they're wonderful websites. The U.S. Geological Geological Service, USGS, they sell maps. Um, I'm always looking for, there's a website on historic maps. So many times I'll pay $20, 30 to buy a map. A lot of these older maps have the landowners written on them for a particular time That's frame. Right. So That's right. Yeah, yeah. Finding maps. Uh, people tend to think if their ancestors um, who who were in the South were sharecroppers or tenant farmers, they don't even look in land records because they'll say, um, he didn't own, my family didn't own land. But if you don't look, maybe they owned land and lost it. Lots of sharecropping agreements are found in the land records, okay? That's right. So That's right. tenant farmers, they did have records. The other thing about those records is they typically have witnesses. They typically have neighbors. And, you know, the further back in time you go, you know, people are marrying their neighbors, you know, their community. So there's that whole cluster research uh, approach where you've got to know what's the group of people that they lived amongst. So land records can be very valuable even if you think your ancestors did not own land.
0: Right, and so, then yes, there's a point. comment coming out of the chat that libraries typically have plenty of old maps.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. There are also the Sanford Fire Company maps. I'm sure that um, your, some of your um, listeners have heard of those. Um, the, the uh, Of course, the State Archives is going to have plenty of maps. I know that North Carolina they have an actual uh link on their uh from their state archives website where they have a whole collection of historic North Carolina maps. Um so, you know, there're just an endless possibilities for records and we're often excited when we find our ancestors. Uh Bernice you mentioned uh military our ancestors that fought in wars. I tell people even if you didn't find your ancestor, pull I pull I'm pulling the Civil War pension records of every black man from Hardin County, Tennessee. Why? Mm -hmm. Because I have several uh, people in the community. None of them are my direct ancestors, but they have so many testimonies from other people in the community. So I have relatives that are testifying in support of those pensions and Again, I think that um, after you've been researching your family for a while, you really do start to be um, knowledgeable about the whole community. So I tend That's to write right. things about the entire community. You know, if you're not writing it, who's writing it? I I send The articles I send to the, the Genealogy Journal down there in Hardin County, I'm the only one that writes articles about African-American people. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important to do that, to write records about that community.
0: Yes, absolutely, and it's something that mm-hmm. we we should be doing.
2: Mm-hmm. Why not? I mean, mm-hmm. who's going to
0: write it if we don't write it?
1: Who's going to write it? I know that Natone edits a, um, a genealogical journal for a South Carolina set of counties. So it's really important When you think about uh, writing up your family, submit it to these journals. That's a sure way that that research is going to survive long after you're gone, right? A hundred years from now, somebody could find that article that you wrote on your family, on the community. I think it's important that we... You know, I, I feel like I'm spending 20 years of my life, 30 years of my life. I want this information to survive me. I want it to be known. I want these ancestors and their incredible lives to be remembered. And that's part of why I do this. So, you know, I just want to encourage everyone to think about that. You Look, you don't have to be Herman Melville or, or, or Toni Morrison. You don't have to be Alice Walker. You don't have to be a great writer. But just get that information out there and get it get recorded that
3: somewhere.
0: That's right. And I had Janice, um, Janice Forte on, and, and she spoke about the heritage book.
2: Mm, that came yes.
0: came out of the Afro um, His, american Historical and Genealogical Society of Chicago. Yes. And yes. so, I mean, her group did this, and it's just fascinating to know that it was a historical society that put together this African-American book. So mm-hmm. why can't others consider doing the exact same thing? It's a wonderful model for others to uh take into consideration when they are gathering information about their family mm-hmm. and they want this information to live on. So do you one have of any your callers your anymore?
1: seventh? One of, one of your callers, Andrea from 718. She's in the Ogs chapter in New York and that's exactly what they did. They spent a year and they uh, published a book of, of uh, all of the research that they'd done. So, yes, a wonderful idea for other genealogical groups and societies.
0: That's right. So any closing remarks? Believe it or not, we're at the end of the show.
1: Okay. Well, my closing remarks would just be thank you, thanking you, Bernice, for uh, inviting me to come on. I always uh, feel like I'm with family when I'm talking about genealogy. Um, this has been a joy to me. I continue to be passionate about this, and I just want to keep encouraging everybody to keep keep on learning. There are just so many different ways to keep learning to get to get better at what you're doing. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, and everyone. I will be broadcasting this show again uh, in March. However, I want everyone to tune in next Thursday, February the 11th next Thursday, and we will hear from Drusilla Pear and Agena Rogers, and they will have a live reenactment, Flight to Freedom, the Fields Family and Freedom's Fortress. What would you risk to gain freedom for your family? So I want to really give a big shout-out to Robin uh, for her discussion tonight on the artificial brick wall. It's something that we just need to keep talking about because we can eventually find our ancestors. So please keep that in your thoughts as you go through your research. I want you to remember that our ancestors left footprints, therefore you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, Family records and research at the National Archives and beyond. Please remember to listen to the African Roots podcast on Friday and also to Nurturing Our Roots on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. This is your host Bernice Alexander Bennett and I want to thank you for joining the show tonight. Have a wonderful evening. Good night. Bye. Good night everyone. Good night, Robin.